Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S., and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. Welcome once again to another episode of Now Appalachia, broadcast across the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue profiling the outstanding authors with connections to Appalachia. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today, uh, veteran investigative reporter and editor Ronnie Green, who is out with a brand new book called Heart of Atlanta, Five Black Pastors and the Supreme Court Victory for Integration. And he's going to be joining us to talk about this book momentarily. He's had a long and storied career as a veteran investigative reporter. He has worked for the Center for Public Integrity. He's also worked for the Associated Press, as well as the Miami Herald. And currently, he is an editor with Reuters in Washington, D.C. He's also the uh, D.C. bureau chief there with Reuters in Washington as the enterprise editor. And he is also the author of the book Shots on the Bridge and Nightfire. And he lives near uh, Washington, D.C. He was a graduate of Virginia Commonwealth University as well. And we are delighted to have him on the program today to talk to us about uh, his brand new book. So, Ronnie, hello to you and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Elliot. I appreciate it. I'm just so excited to talk about this book. I I read your book and I got exposed to you as a writer uh, with your book, Shots on the Bridge, Police Violence and Cover-Up. Uh, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, which came out in 2015. And we'll we'll talk maybe about that here in a little bit. But I was so excited to see you had a, a new book out. And, and this book that you've written, Heart of Atlanta, kind of focuses on uh, really two scenarios. And you have, it's really two segregationists uh, during the Civil Rights Act's passage of 1964. You have two sort of segregationists that uh, as a result of that law, decide not to integrate their establishments. And two of those are the, the Pickwick Restaurant and the Heart of Atlanta Hotel, sort of in defiance of the past Civil Rights Act of 1964. And then you talk about how to, to challenge that. There were some Black ministry students who showed up to eat at the restaurant, and there were also some Black pastors who booked hotel rooms at the motel. And what we see as the book unfolds is that, that these two conflicts two challenges uh, of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. So I wanted to ask you first, um, as we get ready towards the passage of the Civil Rights Act uh, in the South, can you sort of set the scene for us in the weeks leading up to that and maybe the first few days after that? What was the mood, the atmosphere like down there? What were um, African Americans thinking and feeling? What were uh, Caucasian Americans and business owners and people thinking as this was getting ready to pass? What was their mood, their attitudes, their feelings about all of this? Sure, this was um, this was a little bit even eye-opening for me looking back at these times. So as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was moving forward, and it really began in a night in June of 1964 when President Kennedy announced that he was going to be um, proposing some new laws to Congress that would ultimately become the Civil Rights Act of 1964, there was severe and extreme racial tension across the country. There were very violent, very ugly racial killings, often in southern states, though not exclusively. And the killings had become so brazen and violent that the president was finally saying this June night, it's time to change the law. And one of the things that, that was really key to the Civil Rights Act of 64, which was a Proved, of course, after Kennedy uh, was was killed, 
one of the key components of that was dealt with public accommodations. And what we mean by public accommodations is hotels, restaurants, motels, movie houses, basically businesses that are often privately owned, but are open to the public. And what I found really fascinating was before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, local motel and restaurant owners could and did often deny patrons based on race. In other words, if a segregationist res restaurant owner didn't want black customers in his or her business, he would kick them out. And what would happen is the would-be customers would be arrested for violating segregation edicts, for trespassing, for disturbing the peace. So the Civil Rights Act, one of its many components, turned that upside down and said, no, from now on, if you are a private business that basically serves the public, you cannot decide customers based on race. And my book looks at the first two legal challenges over that ruling that both of them surprisingly happened in Atlanta. So the context of the time was this is a very, very racially um, emotional in severe time in American history and the Civil Rights Act of 64 was attempting to sort of right some of the historic wrongs of the country. So let's talk about the two people who brought the lawsuits forward and then we'll talk about uh, the two groups uh, that stood sort of in opposition of that. Uh, you write and we you write about and we're introduced to uh, Morton Rolleston uh, who was a lawyer and, and he filed suit against the Civil Rights Act really the day it was passed. Um, and he was the, uh, the owner or part owner of the uh, Atlanta Hotel. So what were some of his grievances? What were some of his issues with the Civil Rights Act in terms of what it was going to do to his business or what he felt like this was going to set forward in terms of precedent for other businesses? Sure. So the two, the first two challenges I noted, the Civil Rights Act of 64, both occurred in Atlanta and one of them involved the heart of Atlanta Motel, as you mentioned, Morton Rolleston. The other one involved the Pickwick Restaurant, which was owned by Lester Maddox, who had not too long after these events become governor of Georgia. And those two men, Rolleston and Maddox, shared a couple of things in common. One is they felt that they, it was their decision who they allowed into their businesses. Both of them operated businesses that allowed only white customers. While they had black and white employees, they both were diehard segregationists who only allowed white customers. So Rolleston only allowed white customers to stay at the heart of Atlanta Motel, and Maddox only allowed white customers to dine at his restaurant. And so both of them had been practicing segregation long before the Civil Rights Act of 64 was passed. So they were gearing up for a fight when it was passed. And as you mentioned, Rolleston was so opposed to the government telling him what to do that he filed suit against the United States of America and Attorney General Kennedy on the very night that the Civil Rights Act was passed. He actually drove to the clerk's house at nine o'clock that night. And there was a rule back then in Georgia that said the clerk had to be on open for business 24 hours a day. So Rolleston filed his lawsuit at nine o'clock that night. And another thing that Rolleston and Maddox had in common is very much of a, I guess you could say a libertarian view. They felt like they were private business people. The government had no business telling them what to do, had no business telling them how to operate their affairs and who they could let in their doors. So I know you'll ask me about the ministers, but the ministers were um, disciples of Martin Luther King's preaching of nonviolent social justice. They knew these, these two businesses did not allow blacks in. And once the law was passed, they decided to test the water, so to speak, at both businesses. And I love how you describe what happened at, at the Pickwick restaurant to go back there for just a moment, uh, for just a minute. Um, 
Maddox takes out an ad in the local paper kind of promoting the restaurant and this is the stance we're taking. But I found it so interesting that the, the, the five pastoral students who came were turned away, in some cases guns pointed at their heads, and also the fact that some of them were threatened with a beating by axe handles that Maddox actually sold to customers. You yeah, know, no, that was a, that was really striking to me. And again, this was in the context of the time when there was a great deal of, of violence against um, integrationists, against civil rights activists across the country. I mean, the night that John Kennedy announced he wanted to um, issue the Civil Rights Act of 64, Medgar Evers was shot dead with a bullet in his back in his driveway in Mississippi. Morton Rolston filed suit against the government on July 2, 1964, which is the night LBJ signed the law, the act into law. The very next night, which was Friday night, July 3, 1964, three of the ministry students decided to go to the Pickwick restaurant. They went out to the Pickwick restaurant on uh, Friday night around 6 or 6.30. In this context, Maddox had never bought a gun in his life, he said, but as a Civil Rights Act marched towards passage, he bought his first ever handgun. And he also started selling axe handles at his restaurant for $2 a piece to his white clientele. So when three of the ministry students drove out to the Pickrick, they were greeted by Maddox with a pistol in his hand and also with an axe handle and with customers with axe handles. They pulled up into the parking area in a car. Maddox and a couple of his customers went over to the car and the driver of the car was a ministry student by the name of George Willis, who was a renowned amateur boxer who was getting his master's in divinity. He was driving the car as he pulled in, Maddox put the pistol in his face and said, basically, if you try to come from a restaurant, I'm gonna kill you. And there were two other ministers who were there as well. And when they finally decided to leave because they were not gonna be able to get into the restaurant, Maddox took one of the ax handles and bashed their car. And what was really stunning to me was, you know, these ministers, there were ultimately five of them who made visits to the Pickwick restaurant over the course of time. They went four different times. And at least two of those times, Maddox greeted them with pistols. All the times his customers had ax handles, they kept going back. They kept going back in a stance of nonviolence where they, they would not raise their fist saying, the law is with us. We believe we have a right to your restaurant. So they really risked their lives to show that the Civil Rights Act of 64 should be in place across the country. And through this experience also, we meet a person, a civil rights attorney named Constance Baker Motley. Uh, who was she and what was her role in helping out these kids um, as they were involved in the Pickwick restaurant situation? Constance Baker Motley grew to great fame. She was the first black female federal judge in the country. Um, she had worked with the NAACP. She had worked with Thurgood Marshall. She had later on in her career, she would appear before the US Supreme Court. It was a very distinguished um, both attorney and, and, and also a jurist. But at this time, she was the lawyer for those three ministry students who went out to the Pickwick that very first night. They were George Willis, Woodrow Lewis, and Albert Dunn. There were two others who later went out as well. When they were turned away from the Pickwick by pistol and axe handle, a couple of days later, they filed suit against Maddox and the Pickwick. So within a week of the Civil Rights Act being passed, there were two cases in the courts. One was Heart of Atlanta, Morton Rolston suing the federal government saying, you have no right to tell me who to serve as clients in my motel. The other lawsuit was the three ministry students 
filing suit against Maddox in his restaurant saying, we have a right. While the lawsuits came to the court in different ways, they were both dealing with the same issue. That is the question of, do all races have a right to motels and restaurants and other places of public accommodation? And Constance Baker Motley was the lawyer for the ministry students. So she was an important player in the larger events that unfolded. So as things work through and as we get to the Supreme Court and as we, we get ready to have the Supreme Court hear the case, one of the things I loved is that you did a really great job around page 130 in, in that area of the book, you know, 125 to maybe 145 or so, of talking about Earl Warren and the Supreme Court. Because you know we hear so much at this period of history about the Warren Court, the Warren Supreme Court. And a lot of people remember Earl Warren is presiding over the, uh, the, the, the commission that studied the JFK assassination. Which you talked about a moment ago, but um, it, you talk about how the Warren Court had established, uh, had heard the case about Miranda laws that we oftentimes see uh, on cop shows, you know, the right to remain silent, anything you say can and will be used against you. Um, but a, as these cases were coming forward, tell us a little bit about the Warren Court. Who's on it? What was their disposition? What were the, the, the attorneys for both of these um, uh, groups facing in terms of presenting this to Earl Warren and the Supreme Court? What, what was kind of the, the court's makeup and disposition as this case is brought forward today? Sure, yeah, the Warren Court was known. He, uh, Earl Warren was the Chief Justice for 16 years, I think from 53 to 69. I think those are the right, those are the years. And it was known as the court that really uh, adopted uh, cases that had significant impact on social justice and social change across the country. The Warren Court was the time during which Brown v. Board of Education was passed. The Warren Court passed the Miranda Law, which you're right, said that police officers across the country have to tell subjects of their rights before they interrogate them. The Warren Court also passed the Loving case dealing with interracial marriage in a Virginia case in which a white man and a black woman were married and were arrested solely for the quote unquote crime of being an interracial couple. The Warren Court overturned that case. The Warren Court also approved the Gideon case. So many significant cases that impacted the country. So this is the context under which the Heart of Atlanta versus USA case went up to the court in 1964. And so on one side, you had Archibald Cox speaking for the US government. On the other side, you had Morton Rolston speaking for himself. Rolston was a businessman, but also an attorney. And he presented his own case, arguing why he felt that he had the right to decide which clients were allowed into his motel. And what what, um, what Rolston really argued was the whole idea of equality in the Civil Rights Act, um, he thought was less important than a private business person's ability to decide how he or she dictated their business. And the Warren Court by 9-0 vote shot him down unanimously uh, just a few months after they presented oral arguments. And their ruling affirmed the Civil Rights Act of 64 and its section on public accommodations as being legally sound. And I think it was in many ways a very momentous ruling that stands firm to this day. The title of the book we're speaking about today is called Heart of Atlanta, Five Black Pastors and the Supreme Court Victory for Integration. And our guest uh, is author and journalist Ronnie Green. So Ronnie, we'll come back to the book uh, in just a second. I want to ask you a little bit about yourself and a little bit more about you and your career. Uh, you were a recipient of the IRE medal. You've won an Emmy Award. You've also won the Harvard Goldsmith Prize for investigative reporting uh, throughout your career. What got you interested in journalism and wanting to become a journalist? 
you know, it's sort of a roundabout story. Um, when I was a kid, I loved sports and playing sports. And I noticed I started writing stories just for myself about sports. I would, before the baseball season, I would write little mini profiles of all the teams just for no other reason for myself. So, of course, when my sports career ended as like a 16-year-old, I wasn't going to be a professional athlete by any stretch. I decided to write sports, and that got me interested into journalism. And it didn't take long before I sort of broadened my horizon from sports journalism, which I loved, to news journalism. And I began my career in South Florida, which is one of the richest and most vibrant places, I think, to be a journalist. And spent much of my career in South Florida as an investigative reporter and later an investigative editor for the Miami Herald. And it was really a special place to work for many, many years. And about 10 years or so ago, my family moved up to the DC area. And now I, I edit investigative stories for Reuters. So I, my whole career, I should say much of my career, I've been an investigative reporter or investigative editor. And I've also, as you noted, Elliot, I've written three books. Um, what's interesting is uh, when I was a younger reporter, you know, as you're a younger reporter, you cover various beats. I covered, of course, local governments and spent a lot of time that covering those areas. But I also covered the courthouse and just loved it. And all of my books have a real strong legal spine. And I think the training of covering a local courthouse, which is like its own little city unto itself, I think really prepared me for writing books about legal issues. And it's really a love of issues of justice and injustice that have really, I think, spoken in the books that I've written. I know we talked a little bit about this before we started recording our interview today about sort of the state of journalism today, where we are, what's the future going to look like, you know, maybe in five or 10 years, you know, you've been doing this a long time, you've worked uh, uh, in Miami, obviously, and now with Reuters, and you've been a reporter and an editor and award winning reporter, um, as well. How do you see journalism today? What do you think the future beholds for the industry? Us as consumers that rely on the media for a variety of purposes? What, are, what should we expect? What are your thoughts, if you could sort of look into the crystal ball of journalism, maybe in the next five years, what, what do you see emerging, any trends, any uh, things to kind of keep an eye on? Yeah, I think, you know, fact-based, thorough, serious journalism is important now as it has ever been. Um, over the last decade, as anyone in any local community knows, great local newspapers um, from Miami and New Orleans to Chicago and beyond all over the country, great local newspapers have been experience severe cutbacks in their staffing. A lot of those papers are still doing really great work, but with much more limited staffing. Um, a lot of the uh, journalism jobs nowadays are in you know, major centers like Washington or New York, but the need for great local independent journalism is as profound as ever. And so every time a local paper does a great investigative story, I sort of am among those cheering on the sidelines for our industry to still do really important work. So if you're not reporting or working on a book or researching for another book and you're just reading for pleasure or for your own enjoyment, who are some of your favorite authors? What are some of your favorite books maybe that you've read recently or maybe some all-time favorites that you'd like to share with us? Sure, that's a good question. One of my favorite books before writing this book um, was Parting the Waters, which was Taylor Branch, this uh, really tremendous writer, I believe based in Baltimore. He did a trilogy on Martin Luther King. Parting the Waters is the first book in that three-part trilogy. Um, so when I was researching Heart of Atlanta, which dealt with a lot of the time frame and some of the main characters that, of course, were mentioned in Taylor Branch books, I went back and, of course, read all three of his books, but I reread Parting the Waters after reading a bunch of other books as well and just really appreciated that book 
really for, uh, for a second reading. I also, in researching this book, read all of Robert Caro's uh, books on Lyndon Johnson, because Johnson was such a key figure in the Civil Rights Act's passage, and he was a really a fascinating character. So for many years in the Senate, Lyndon Johnson was resisting civil rights legislation, but when he became vice president and then president after President Kennedy was assassinated, Lyndon Johnson was vital to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and Robert Caro's books really helped it show sort of the about face by Caro. So I learned from those books in really a profound way. Um, those are some of the books that I've, I've read. You know, I read fiction as well, but I love really reading in-depth nonfiction about historical figures, historical events that really take you to the scene and almost place you there. We're speaking with journalist and author Ronnie Green today on Now Appalachia. His new book is called Heart of Atlanta, Five Black Pastors and the Supreme Court Victory for Integration. And Ronnie, we'll go back to the book uh, and, and talk a little bit more about that. I, I had a question I wanted to ask you um, going back to the five pastors that we were talking about a moment ago, two of them are still living, Albert Sampson and Woodrow Lewis. And one of the interesting things I loved about your book as I was reading it is when you would find information, when you would find uh, you know, newspaper stories or a picture or a, a video clip or a news clip or something like that, um, where they were, they were uh, mentioned or um, uh, they, they were rather not mentioned. They were just either kind of unnamed. They were listed as sort of unknown people uh, in part of that evidence. Um, a lot of them didn't even realize that they had been photographed or that they had been uh, included in some of that uh, information. What was their reaction when you showed them those, those pieces of information and said, yeah, that's you right there. Or see, there you are standing there, even though they didn't give you a credit you know, in the byline or anything, what was their reaction when they realized they were in a lot of this footage and news coverage, even though they didn't realize it? Now that's a really good point. You know, there's, there's really two prongs of this. One is I think the case itself, the case writ large, has not received as much recognition as really it warrants. Because if you look at before these events, fights over you know, the lunch counter sit-ins were, were famous. Fights over integration of restaurant and motels were very much part and parcel of the struggle for equality and civil rights. After passage of this uh, Supreme Court ruling, this discussion, you know, this case has been largely forgotten. And also I feel like these ministers have been really completely unheralded. Um, in answering to your question, when I decided to really look into this book, and when I remember the first time I reached out to Reverend Sampson, who is a pastor now in Chicago, all of these ministers had been ministry students in Atlanta, I reached him. He said, you brought tears to my eyes. I've been waiting for this call all my life. What he meant by that is he and others felt like this was a piece of history that had been neglected and forgotten and their roles had really been forgotten. And you're right, Elliot, you know, there's um, the Civil Rights Digital Library has this incredible footage of one of the times um, so four of the ministers tried to integrate the Pickwick and it shows Maddox pushing them away, violently repelling them, pushing them away as they did not fight back. The Civil Rights Digital Library Archives only identify one of the four ministers. I was able to figure out who the other three were, and they were ministers in my book, Charles Wells, Albert Dunn, Woodrow Lewis, and um, George Willis. And I showed that uh, video footage one day to Woodrow Lewis, and it's the first time he'd ever seen it. There also would be newspaper accounts where the ministers were not quoted. Maddox was the only one quoted. They were not quoted. They were unnamed ministers. And then there was also this 
I found this photo in the old archives, I think of the Atlanta Journal of Les Dramatics pushing back on a well-dressed man and the man is unidentified. I was able to figure out that's George Willis, one of the pastors I interviewed, his widow, and I knew it was him because I had seen pictures of him, but I shared the photo with her and she said, yeah, that's George. So these ministers were unheralded and unrecognized for their role in this really momentous civil rights struggle. And my hope is that this book restores this case to its proper place in history and also restores these ministers. And what I took from this is there are hundreds or thousands of unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. Here are five of them in this book. And I think Heart of Atlanta showcases five of these heroes. And I think they are heroes because they put their lives on the line to demand just an equal equality, equal footing with, with all with everyone. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I wanted to ask you just sort of a hypothetical question because you talked about Lyndon Johnson a moment ago and mm -hmm. Robert Caro's uh, voluminous collection of writing on Lyndon Johnson is really something everybody should read, especially if you're interested in that period in history. But your thoughts on had Kennedy lived? Had Kennedy not been assassinated in 63? Do you have a sense of uh, having researched this, this period so deeply, what might the Civil Rights Act of 64 had looked like? Would we have seen what we saw here going on in the South? Would we have seen Medgar Evers? Would we have had all of that going on? Or was it inevitable? It didn't matter who the president was or who passed it or whatever it was going to happen. I know it's a hypothetical, but what is your sense on, it's on that? It's a, it's a good question. You know, what's interesting is that um, President Kennedy was swept into office with 70% of the black vote across the country. And he had promised that he was going to take up civil rights legislation as one of his four shores of business. It actually took a couple of years to get there. So there were civil rights activists who were prodding him, some publicly, some privately, like Martin Luther King was privately prodding him. Finally, when Bull Connor unleashed his attack dogs and fire hoses on even children in Alabama, and when George Wallace was refusing to let students, black students enter the University of Alabama, finally Kennedy had had enough. So I think the momentum had finally reached a point where Kennedy was gonna make this happen. And had he not been so tragically assassinated, I do believe the Civil Rights Act of 64 would have still passed with, with him in office. I think Lyndon Johnson took it up very seriously. He made it really a significant priority for him, but I do think it would have passed with Kennedy in office as well. I wanted to ask you a question about libertarianism, because I feel like that was a, a theme or a thread that was running in your book. And you touched on this earlier when you were talking about uh, Maddox and Rolleston and, and their belief that, you know, government did not have the right to regulate private businesses. That was part of their argument, uh, even though they were uh, driven by personal racism in many ways. But that was an, another underpinning of their argument. And it was interesting because I, I feel like we think of libertarianism as sort of being this, this third party kind of fringe thing that's just emerged over the last 25 or 30 years. But if you look at, at their beliefs during that period, it's almost like that libertarianism was kind of in existence back in 64, 1964, that it's not something that just kind of popped up, you know, in the mid eighties and beyond. Can you talk a little bit about, about that and, and about that kind of, uh, thread running uh, in, in the undercurrents of what Maddox and Rolleston uh, were arguing and, and upset about. Yeah, they both said, you know, in their court statements at the time and their, um, you know, depositions they gave on back and got all the court records from um, five or six decades ago. And I also interviewed both of their sons and what they both said, Rolleston and Maddox, they said, 
This is not about someone being a racist. This is about me being a private business person who has a right to decide how I operate my business. They both said that the biggest thing I'm fighting is the government telling me what to do, big government. And um, they said that, but then you look at the actions of, of Maddox. You know, Maddox violently repelled these ministry students who showed up at his door simply to order food like any other customer. He, with, he violently repelled them with pistol, with ax handles, and had, you know, one of the ministers told me, uh, Brother Lewis said, if had we fought back, we would have been slaughtered because they were surrounded by masses of Maddox supporters. So that was their argument at the time, but the evidence of what they did, I think, pointed to something else. I mean, you know, I think that pushing back so violently against would-be integrators simply because of their color of the skin speaks to also what was going on at that time. So in our final moments with you today, Ronnie, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about this book, to talk to you about your other two books, Shots on the Bridge, uh, Police Violence and the Cover-Up in the Wake of Katrina, or Nightfire, Big Oil, Poison Air, and Margie Richards' Fight to Save Her Town, which came out in 2009, if anybody wants to reach out and get in contact with you, how can they do that? And then secondly, where can they get copies of Heart of Atlanta? Yeah, they can contact me. Um, my day job is with Reuters, but I also teach part-time at Johns Hopkins. You can, anyone can reach me at my Johns Hopkins address. It's rgreen49 at jhu.edu. And I'd be happy to talk about any of these issues. And as far as Heart of Atlanta, um, Heart of Atlanta is published by Chicago Review Press. So it's available on the Chicago Review Press website. It's also easily available on Amazon and should be in many bookstores. Um, so go to your local bookstore if it's not there and you want it, please ask them to get it or uh, look for it on Amazon or Chicago Review Press um, online. It's available uh, widely at this point. The title of the book is called Heart of Atlanta, Five Black Pastors in the Supreme Court Victory for Integration. And our guest today on Now Appalachia has been reporter and author Ronnie Green. This is his third book. And Ronnie's had a distinguished career uh, as a reporter and an editor. He was the recipient of the IRE Medal. He's won an Emmy Award. He's also been a recipient of the Harvard Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting. This is a terrific book that shines a light on uh, an untold group of people involved in the civil rights um, passage of 1964 and in the days and, and weeks and months after that that you probably haven't heard about before. And it's written in very engaging prose. This is something that you'll be able to pick up and get absorbed in the story almost immediately. It's a terrific book that adds a lot of insight into this period in American history. Ronnie, congratulations on it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for the conversation. Elliot, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special thank you to our executive producer of the program and the executive producer of all of the podcasts here on the network. Her name is Pam Stack, so we appreciate all the work and support that she provides each and every episode here on Now Appalachia and across the network. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the AIR Global Radio Network. That is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia. Please come again next time, and in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the AIR Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.